Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 4. We're going to continue what we started this morning. If it doesn't get any better than Jesus, really this is a continuation of kind of what we began to get into uh, the previous message. The, the problem with the Galatians was not so much legalism as it was half legalism. Uh, trying to blend law and grace, offering up a spiritual smoothie, if you will, to say you can blend in law with grace and make it all work. And Paul refutes that and says it doesn't happen because the law condemns, but grace sets us free. Now, a couple of statements from this morning that I think need to be repeated. Number one, salvation is more than a salvage operation. God didn't just save us to get us out of hell. If he saved us to get us out of hell, then we would have got saved, we would have gone on to heaven. It would have been that simple. God saved us for a purpose, for our sanctification. Secondly, not only did God not save us to get us out of hell, but we got more in Christ than we lost in Adam. I mean, what I have received in Christ Jesus is more overwhelming than I can explain. In fact, if you don't believe that statement, just think about the fact that for all eternity, we will be praising God for what he did for us in Christ. It doesn't take you but about 20 minutes to tell people how sorry you were before Christ. But it'll take you all eternity to say to God how thankful for you, you are for what Christ did. That's why I say you got more in Christ than you ever lost in Adam. Because what we got in Christ is of eternal praise and significance. And, and so when, when I think about what Paul is saying here, when we pick up in verse 4, God sent forth his son. Remember that word is the same word as that he apostled him. It's the same word for the apostles sent out with a mission and with a purpose. It reminds me that my commission is greater than the great commission. I have been sent forth to represent Christ. It's not just that the great commission tells me I'm supposed to go. But Jesus said, I'm sending you out to do exactly what I was sent to do. And what was he sent to do? To share good news. To talk about, to live, to exemplify godliness in a lost world, in a lost community. So so here's this message that we've been given. And and missions and evangelism is the genius of the gospel. Uh, We are not evangelizing people to a religion. We are not trying to evangelize people to a denomination. We are wanting people to come into an intimate relationship with the Son of God where we can be sons and heirs and joint heirs, where they can establish a relationship they could never have in any other religion, always grasping, always hoping that they can please, always hoping that they can satisfy or appease. Not so in Christianity. In Christ, all our sin is washed away, and we are by grace forgiven and allowed to have the privilege of worshiping Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that 
he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So let's look at the fact that we are adopted as sons. Thomas Watson said, I love this statement. Thomas Watson was one of the great old Puritans. Thomas Watson said, we needed a father. He didn't need sons. But we needed a father. But God didn't need sons. God doesn't need anything or anyone. God had a son, Jesus Christ. He didn't need another son. God was fulfilled in and of himself. And and I love it when he says he didn't need sons, but we needed a father. Paul is referring to the Roman legal system in verse 4 and 5. And he's using legal language that these Galatians would have understood. By the way, Paul is the only New Testament writer that uses the term adoption. And he's talking about adoption from a twofold point. First of all, from placement and position. We've been placed into the family and we are positioned as heirs. We've been placed as sons and positioned as heirs. And so when Paul is talking about adoption, he's talking about something that these people would have been very familiar with. And so let's look at two key facts regarding Roman law and adoption. Number one, you have equal status. This is where the Romans were different than the Jews. The Jews were God's covenant people, but but you have equal status, and here's what that means. With the Jewish people, the firstborn got all or the greater portion of the inheritance. Women got even less of the inheritance. The firstborn got it all. Paul says you're not just adopted, but you get it all. Not just the first one that got saved, but all who get saved. We're all connected on equal ground with God. And so we are adopted into him. We have equal status. In other words, there are no bigwigs in the kingdom of God. We're all just little wigs that some need a wig. <laughs> but there are no bigwigs. No, nobody can strut in the presence of God because we're all of equal status. If somebody looks down their nose at you and they're a Christian or they think they're better than you or they think they're more spiritual than you, you need to just remind yourself, hey, they're, as far as in God's eyes, we're on equal status. He's not a better son than me. Now, he may act better than me sometimes, but he's not a better son in the eyes of God than I am. He's a son. God didn't give adjectives. He said he's just called us and adopted us as sons. No adjectives, just sons. And so we've been given equal status. Now, here's what was interesting about the Roman culture. A Roman wealthy man in Rome could take the child of a slave and make that slave a son. And by adoption, give the child of a slave who would cease to be a slave equal status with any natural children that he had, and they would gain full inheritance. Let me tell you what this word adopted means, and it's a great word. It it is two Greek words. One means a son, and the other means a placing. It is a placing of a son. God has placed us into sonship. He has put us, he has positioned us into sonship. And so there are three things that I want you to see about this equal status. First of all, for the person who was adopted, all old relationships were severed. 
all old relationships were severed. In other words, when that slave became a child of that Roman citizen, he was no longer the child of his birth parents. He was the child of that Roman citizen. All old relationships were severed. Secondly, all debts were canceled. If he owed debts, they were all canceled, wiped off the books. Nothing held against, nothing held to their account. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus does? He cancels the debt. He sets the captive free. Thirdly, all old obligations were eliminated. And so all old relationships were severed, old debts were canceled, and old obligations were eliminated. And we became heirs. That's what the Romans did. They adopted them, and they became heirs. One who takes possession of another's possessions. Heirs and join heirs with Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think of what it cost the Son of God to make you a son of God. It cost the Son everything to make us sons. And, and in doing that, God gave His Son to make us sons, and that leads to the fact that not only do we have equal status, we can never be disowned. Now, this is important. This is important because this is an issue of eternal security. I do not believe in once saved, always saved, meaning that if I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and never darkened the door of church again, when, I, when they bury me, they can say he made a decision when he was nine years old, and so he's in heaven today. I believe that the Bible teaches that salvation has fruit and evidence. If you define salvation by biblical terms... It shows up. It's not, I'm going to hold on to the fact that somebody got saved 30 years ago and lived like hell for the rest of their lives, but they're going to go, they didn't get saved. They made a decision, but they didn't come to Christ because Christ changes lives. I mean, if if you don't even, if, if you start out, I got saved and I've started backsliding immediately, I would question your salvation decision. And have every right to do so. Because Jesus said, by their fruit you'll know them. So if I'm not seeing fruit, I ought to be able to look and say, I don't think you're saved. But this is an issue of eternal security because a natural born child can be disowned. Now hear me. Under the legal system in Rome, the adopted child had more rights than the natural born child. A natural-born child could be disowned by its parents, kicked out, disowned, cut out from the inheritance. But an adopted child could never be disowned as a son because the laws bound that father to that child. And he could never let him go. So that, to me, is one of the strongest words that Paul could use to teach eternal security. In other words, if I've been adopted into the family, I can't be unadopted. And I can't unadopt myself. I wouldn't want to. If I knew the inheritance I had in Christ, why would I want to get out of that family? I'd rather stay there. And so Paul is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you want to know what it means to be a son of God, it means you're adopted. And immediately, his audience would have known, that means I can never be disowned. I can never lose what I've been given. Now, that is important for us 
Because sometimes people say, well, you can get it and you can lose it and you can get it and you can lose it and you can get it and you lose it. I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that, that we, have, we are secured and sealed by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's seal cannot be broken. You can't be unbaptized in the Holy Spirit. You can't be unsealed in the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if my salvation depended on my behavior, I could lose it. Now let's face it. Did any of you do anything this week? If, if, if just that day this week, your salvation depended on your behavior, could you have lost your salvation this week? Don't look at me like you haven't done anything this week. I mean, you could. I mean, if, it just, if, if everything about your salvation was dependent on what you do and how you act, then you can lose it. But if my salvation is dependent on the Holy Spirit and Christ in me, He can't leave me. He said, I will, what? Never leave you or forsake you. Unless you lose your salvation. That's not what He said. You can't add to and you can't take away from the Bible. He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you not to come in and out and in and out and in and out. Be there one day, not be there the next. Ask for him, no, get him. Don't get him, get him. He said, no, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, a comforter, to abide in you and to dwell in you and to manifest himself in you. Stephen Sharnock says, adoption gives us the privilege of sons Regeneration gives us the nature of sons. J.I. Packer said, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher even than justification. 2 Corinthians six seventeen says, I welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Ephesians 1, 5, God has predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Romans eight twenty nine talks about that we are predestined and we are called and we are justified. Let me tell you what the purpose of predestination is. The purpose of predestination is for you to be like Jesus. God has predestined and ordained that when you're saved, he's going to work in your life, chisel in your life, prune your life, Heal you back a few times to make you more and more like Jesus. It is a disciplined word as much as it is anything. If I am saved and secure in Christ, then part of what God does in me is he predestines me to be conformed into the image of Christ. Vance Havner used to say, I used to try to explain predestination until I heard others try to explain it. I can't explain it, but I know the purpose of it. The purpose is that you and I might become more like Jesus. And this is what Havner used to say when people would ask him if he believed in predestination and election. He would talk about what you're predestined to be is like Jesus. And then he'd say, brother, how are you coming along with your predestination? And when they'd get defensive, he'd say, doesn't sound like you're very humble and meek and lowly like Jesus to me. You see, God has predestined us to be like Christ. And so when we talk about this word, 
it is primarily by many people considered just a word that has to do with salvation. I would submit to you that predestination and election is more a sanctification word than it is a salvation word. It is how we live once we've been saved. First of all, it's a family secret. Not something you're supposed to talk about with lost people because they don't understand it anyway. But secondly, it has to do with how we are to live as believers in Christ Jesus. And it is a word that makes me realize that God is going to fulfill his purpose in my life. I can either go willingly or kicking and screaming. In fact, I have written in the front of my Bible this statement from Vance Havner. I'll just go ahead and read. I was looking at it tonight while we were uh, singing for a minute. This was Havner's summary of faith. Trusting Christ as Savior, confessing Him as Lord, receiving Him as my life. I would live by the daily conscious appropriation of the living Christ by faith for body, mind, and spirit, that His resurrection power might be released in me to the extent that God is glorified and his purpose carried out in conforming me to the image of his son, that I may know him and that I may make him known. Now, here's what I do know. I, I don't know everything. I can't explain everything in the Bible. I'm just a simple guy from Mississippi. But I know this. The Bible nowhere, 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 nowhere teaches that people are predestined to go to hell. Nowhere. If you find that in the Bible, you've twisted the Scripture to make it say what you want it to say. It is not God's will that any should perish. Oh, I know, that's a, that's a proof text verse. Take all the proof text verses, verses out on salvation and everything else and read the Gospels through and read the Bible through and nowhere will you find that God has predestined people to choose for His glory to send people to hell. People go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They go to hell because of their choice to not follow Jesus Christ to not follow the law of conscience of which they are all guilty, to not follow the law of which we are all guilty. And, and God's plans exceed your ability to understand it or explain it. Let me just tell you, if you can explain how God works in all this, you're smarter than me, and you're a lot smarter than God because God left mystery in the Scriptures. And your finite mind, I don't care if you got 195 IQ, cannot even comprehend a grain of sand of the mind of God. No man can know his mind except what he's chosen to reveal to us. So I can't explain it. There are truths that are paradoxical. There are truths that are mystery. I can't reconcile it with my finite mind. If I try to, I'll lose my mind. So I just take God at his word. I'll just be simple. But I believe that God teaches election and predestination, but I also believe that God's Word teaches man's responsibility. Now, how do you reconcile that? I don't have to. That's up to God to reconcile that. But I know that I am to preach the gospel and to teach the gospel and to share the gospel with every person at every time in every way possible at every opportunity. That's what my calling and responsibility is. In fact, 
let me, let me give you two statements that I think will help you. The sovereignty of God is not threatened by man's free will. The sovereignty of God is not threatened by man's free will. We've been predestined to be adopted as son. The sovereignty of God is not threatened by man's free will, and man's free will does not trump sovereignty. Man's free will does not trump or override sovereignty. God's still on the throne. Now, you'll hear sometimes, and I'm chasing a little rabbit here because I'm choosing to. I was ordained to do it. Um, you'll hear sometimes people use terms that are not in the Bible. They're man-made terms. We've talked about this before. One of those terms is irresistible grace. Here's my question. If grace is irresistible, that I have no choice in salvation, then why is grace resistible in sanctification? If, I, if grace is so irresistible that I have to respond because God's chosen me to respond, then why do people that have responded to grace choose to sin? If it's irresistible in salvation, it must be irresistible in sanctification. In other words, I shouldn't have a problem with temptation. So my question is, why does Paul keep talking about things like temptation and sin in the works of the flesh? If it's not a battle I'm dealing with. If it's not something you're dealing with. If, if, it's not a, if it's not an issue that we're called to confront and deal with and to walk by faith, then why does Paul deal with it? I'll tell you why. Because you can resist grace and you've done it this week. You've resisted the grace of God this week. Now, if you couldn't resist it in the moment of salvation, does that mean that you can resist it? That doesn't make sense. I mean, even logic. Forget theology. Even logic says, how could I not resist it and be saved, but I can resist it now that I am saved? and not respond to the grace of God. You see, if it was irresistible, every moment, every waking moment, every thought, every deed of my life would be an act of worship and a response to the unbelievable grace of God poured out in my life. And the truth of the matter is, you know and I know and we all know because we all know each other that we have rejected that at times. And we have chosen to sin. Haven't we? You ever chosen to sin? You ever known something was wrong to do and you did it anyway? Hello? You must have a free will. Because if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have made that choice. But as an adopted child, and as an heir and a joint heir, I want my choices to be more and more to please the Father who loved me enough to give his life for me. So, we're on equal status. Let's go to the legacy that we have, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, it, it is hard to read. I want you to turn to Romans 8. It's hard to read the Bible and, and not find the word power associated with the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, look, read the book of Acts and look at the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, the, the legacy that they left because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, the, the evidence of the power of the Spirit of God working in them and through them it is all over the New Testament. And so Paul is writing, and he's, and he's talking about crying, Abba, Father. This is intimacy. These are words of tenderness and love. Here's, here's the thing that makes Christianity unique. It is the only religion in the world that has a doctrine of a Holy Spirit. It's the only one. That the Holy Spirit comes, God's Spirit, God's Son, Christ in you, comes to live inside of you, to empower you and to equip you to live the life that you cannot live on your own. You don't burn candles. You don't chant. You don't have to face toward any city. You don't have to get golden tablets and interpret them. You just have the Holy Spirit of God that bears witness with your spirit and puts a check in your spirit and puts a check in your conscience when you're doing something and the Spirit of God says, I wouldn't do that if I was you. That's not because you're smart. That's because the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. That's because the Holy Spirit's reminding you of a word that you heard preached one day. That's because the Holy Spirit's reminding you of something you heard in Bible school one day. The Holy Spirit of God quickens inside of us and reminds us when we're not walking with Him. And so I, I want you to look at Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, now let, me, let me just, there's a whole lot of theological debate around this. Let me just sum it up for you. What Paul is saying here in Romans 8 is, because you are weak and because you are frail and because you have a life that is not always in tune with God, the Holy Spirit is always praying the will of God inside of you. Have you ever had times when you didn't know the will of God? You don't sit here all night if you want. Have you ever had times when you just didn't know the will? You didn't know what to do? The Holy Spirit knows what the will of God is for you. And so the Holy Spirit ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is very clear about what he's praying about. When, when we're weak, when we're helpless, he's praying for us to have the power and the strength and the ability and the wisdom to live according to the will of God. If you want to know what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father right now and what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you, they are in constant communication with God the Father, taking our names before God saying, Lord, help them to walk in your will. Let them know your will. God, the Holy Spirit, is praying that we will understand the will of God, that I may not know what's best for me, but God does. I may not know what's best for me. God the Father does, God the Son does, God the Holy Spirit does, and they're never in disagreement. They're not up in heaven going, I don't know, what do you think? You think he, do you think he ought to do this or you think he ought to do that? I don't know, you think he ought to go here or you think he ought to go there? I don't know, you think he ought to do this or... No, they're in one accord. They are in total harmony with each other, and they are committed to praying that we walk in the will of the Father. 
And so when I'm weak, the one thing I know is, Lord, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what you want me to do. I don't know where you want me to go. I don't know if you want me to do this or accept this invitation. I I don't know what you want to do, but I know that you know the will of God for my life. And the one thing I don't want to do is step outside of your will. John MacArthur says this about this prayer. Because of our imperfect perspectives, finite minds, human frailties, and spiritual limitations... We are not able to pray in absolute consistency with God's will. Many times we are not even aware that spiritual needs exist, much less know how best that they should be met. Even the Christian who prays sincerely, faithfully, and regularly cannot possibly know God's purposes concerning all of his own needs or the needs of others for whom he prays. So what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit praying for us. By the way, he cares more about you being in God's will than you care about being in God's will. That word receive is a verb that points to the time when we were baptized into a new relationship with Christ. Look, look back up at Romans eight fifteen. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. In other words, I don't live in fear. God's not given us a spirit of fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 9 says, If we any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So we've received a spirit of adoption, and the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we may suffer with him and also be glorified with him. You, you know, I hear a lot of people want to, want to walk in the glory of God, want to see the glory of God. I don't see anybody volunteering to suffer for God. Nobody's getting in that line. If you want the short line at the drive through get in the need to learn patience, need to suffer so that I can be conformed to his image line. It'll always be a short line. If you want to get in the raise your hands and praise the Lord line, it'll always be a long line. They're both a part of the Christian life. If you're going to live for Christ, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. And by the way, he didn't put an exemption clause in for anybody. Blanket statement. You live for me, you're going to have tribulation. You live for me, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Well, people don't hate me. Well, you might not be enough of a Christian for them to cause any offense. Because people will have a problem with Jesus. They don't have a problem with God. They don't have a problem with the big guy upstairs. They don't have a problem with the ecclesiastical Santa Claus. But you start talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll draw a line over which most people can't walk with you. The issue is not do you believe in God. The issue is do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the only way of salvation. That's the issue. And it is the dividing line for all people. And so here's the life we are to live. God's a purpose. God has a purpose and a plan, and it's not about us. You see, if I'm adopted, if I'm a son, if I'm an heir, then I need to live with a sense of accountability and responsibility. Rights bring responsibility. If I'm a child of the king, then I ought to act like it. 
being a part of the royal family should demand a higher level of living. We got the titles, but sometimes we're an embarrassment to our Father. And sometimes we let Him down because we don't live up to our title, heir, joint heir with God, adopted into the family. Sometimes the king needs to call us in and say, I need you to straighten up a little bit. Because you're not living up to your title. Blessings mean duty. So let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, we're to be led by the Spirit. We're to be led by the Spirit. Let me give you four characteristics of the Spirit's leading. Four characteristics of the Spirit's leading. First of all, the Spirit never leads contrary to the Word of God. The Spirit will never lead you contrary to the Word of God. If you ever hear anybody say, well, the Spirit... The Spirit told me to do this. The Spirit led me to do this. And it's contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. The Spirit, the Spirit, didn't tell them to do that. A Spirit may have told them to do that, but the Spirit didn't tell them. Number two, the Spirit's leading will always exalt Jesus, not the flesh. The Spirit is leading us. Jesus is always exalted. Not the flesh, not my name, not my reputation, but the reputation of Christ in me will always be exalted, will always be premier. Number three, the Holy Spirit doesn't force or manipulate us. The Holy Spirit convicts, but he doesn't manipulate, he doesn't force. We're not robots to be programmed. We're not a computer to be programmed. The Holy Spirit woos us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit prods us. The Holy Spirit gives us peace, the peace of God. But he doesn't manipulate us. Number four, the Spirit wants willing obedience, genuine submission, and heartfelt surrender. The Spirit is trying to lead us to the point where it is the desire of our heart to have willing obedience, genuine submission, and heartfelt surrender. So first of all, we're led by the Spirit. Secondly, we are to long for godly wisdom. Now because of time, I'm just going to give you some references and then I'm going to read some references. We are to long for godly wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Psalm 25, 4. Make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day. Psalm 25, 9, he teaches the humble his way. Psalm 143 and verse 10, teach me to do thy will for thou art my God. Let thy good spirit lead me on level ground. So we're to long for godly wisdom. I was talking to a friend of mine, one of the smartest people I've ever met on the planet. Uh, he's got enough doctrinal hours to teach New Testament Greek, New Testament Hebrew, Latin, preaching, Old Testament, and New Testament, and religious philosophy. He's a smart dude. Monday of the Southern Baptist Convention, after the election at the pastor's conference, he pulled me aside, and he said, Michael, 
Here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you to have wisdom. Now listen, this is a guy that can read in the original languages and never misses a beat. He knows the nuances of every word. He's the smartest guy I've ever met. When he preached through 1 John when he was my pastor, he read almost 5,000 pages in commentary material on 1 John alone. He has a photographic memory. Most brilliant man I've ever met. This is what he said to me. He said, Michael, wisdom literature is the key literature in all of Scripture. More than any other writings, it's how God tells us to think and to live. And he's not just talking about Proverbs. Wisdom literature tells us how to think and how to live. And so one of the things that we do with the Spirit of God is God give us wisdom to know the difference between good and better and best, between what's good and what's of God, so that the peace of God rules in our hearts. Wisdom literature gives us the key to the life that God intended. Ephesians 1:17. Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. If you want to know how to pray for your kids and their education and the way they think and what influences them, Ephesians 1, 17 and following is a good place to start. That they have wisdom. Don't pray that they be great athletes. Don't pray that they be great musicians. Don't pray that they be great people that make a lot of money. Pray that they have wisdom. They'll get a lot further. Because there are a lot of great athletes that don't have wisdom to know what to do with the money they make. And they're broke when they get out of pro sports. Pray that they have wisdom. Ephesians 3.16, Paul also prayed that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Colossians 1.9 We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Wisdom. We are to long for godly wisdom. Not just, Lord, I want to know you, and I want to know a lot about you, but I want to have the wisdom to know what to do with what I know. You see, there are a lot of people that know things in the Bible, but they don't have the wisdom to know what to do with what they know. Sometimes you just don't tell everything you know. You imagine how many sermons Paul preached that we don't know what the text was? Paul knew what to put in. 
God gave him enough wisdom when he got the thorn in the flesh to not tell him what he saw in the third heaven, not to tell us what the, what the thorn in the flesh was. I need wisdom. When I think about John Wesley, he was one of the great leaders of Christendom, really responsible for the fact, he, he along with George Whitfield, are probably as responsible as anyone for the fact that there wasn't a civil war in England during their lifetimes. Wesley was highly educated. He was a graduate of, of Oxford. He studied ministry at Oxford. He celebrated Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath just to make sure all his bases were covered. He was a member of the Holy Club. He fasted, he prayed, he ministered to prisoners and orphans. He was a missionary in Georgia and all of that before he was saved. He did all of that. But it wasn't until the Holy Spirit struck him down and showed him the depth of his sin and that his religion couldn't save him that Wesley's life was changed. I want you to listen to what John Wesley said because this is true of a lot of people in the church today. Wesley said, I had the faith of a slave, but I didn't have the faith of a son. You know why people are serving God more and enjoying it less? Because they got just enough faith in God of a slave. If I don't serve him, he's going to beat me up. He's going to hurt me. He's going to hurt my children. He's going to hurt my mama. He's going to hurt somebody else. If I don't do it, God's going to be ticked off at me, and I'm going to hear about it for the rest of my life. That's the faith of a slave. The faith of a son is the son that comes to his senses in the pig pen and says, I'm going to go back to my father's house. It's a whole lot better in dad's house than it is sitting here in the pig pen. And realizing that when you have the faith of a son, that the father's been waiting and watching just to hear the sound of your sandals running back to his presence. The elder brother had the faith of a slave. The prodigal found the faith of a son that knew in the father's house there was a possibility of forgiveness and redemption and embrace. I don't want to have the faith of a slave. I want to have the faith of a son. That when I mess up, I don't have to try to figure out if I can boldly approach the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness. I know I can. Because my father loves me enough to forgive me. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Katz. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.